You're listening to the Peace Corner. For more stories on peace and conflict, click subscribe. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud and more. The struggle for identity and self-determination fuel conflict in many regions of the world. In Southeast Asia particularly, these struggles have become crises in Mindanao and Myanmar. The Rohingya crisis in Myanmar has been described by the United Nations as a textbook example of ethnic cleansing. As a result of this, the Rohingyas now form one of the largest groups of displaced peoples across the globe. Almost one million Rohingya live here in Cox's Bazaar, each with an individual story of horrific violations of loss and of death. In the southern Philippines, the peace process between the Moro Islamic Liberation Front and the Philippine government is in a tenuous state, with martial law declared on the island of Mindanao by President Duterte in 2017. 150,000 have died in the conflict between Moro Muslims and the government of the Philippines. But for Moro Muslims, it's part of a centuries-long struggle for self-determination. Against this backdrop, there are those that struggle tirelessly for a change. Makers and builders of peace who believe that solidarity between peoples is the way to advocate for peace. To understand how this solidarity grows and has the power to break the status quo, we sat down with Filipino peace guru Gus Mikla, co-founder of Initiatives for International Dialogue, or IID. We asked him, how can solidarity be a tool for peace in Southeast Asia? Welcome to the Peace Corner podcast. The purpose of our podcast is to demystify uh, what peace building is, to let people know what exactly the process of making peace looks like and who are the people who are trying to do it. We're interested to hear about your story, about how you got started in the work and why it matters to you and what you do in it. So our first question is, how did your interest in peace building begin? Uh, well, it... Uh technically uh, began in the year 2000 when the then president of the Philippines, Joseph Estrada, who was a former action movie star, declared an all-out war, like in the movies, in Mindanao against the uh, Moro or Muslim uh, insurgents. And this, uh, of course, uh, resulted into massive uh, displacement of communities and of people as the army pursued the, the mujahideens or the rebels of the Moro Islamic Liberation Front who were at that time supposed to be negotiating a political settlement with, with the government. Of course, apart from the massive displacements, there were of course uh, deaths, uh, injuries, what have you. But the displacements of women, children, old men who have been experiencing the same uh, for decades now, and uh, different presidents, different governments have declared their own versions of all-out wars against them uh, intermittently, have uh, pushed our partners in in Mindanao to uh, seek our. Um, assistance, if you may, of, or seek our how we could accompany or help them in responding to this perennial problem of of war and and uh, pause in the war and then war again, etc. Our organization at that time was not doing anything in Mindanao or in the Philippines because we were a and still are 
mainly an advocacy and solidarity organization. And we were focusing on work outside of the Philippines and developing people-to-people, south-to-south solidarity work. And uh, just to give a, a little bit of background, uh, our organization, the Initiatives for International Dialogue, was established in 1988 uh, to particularly share to the rest of the region or to the world what we could share in our own experience in the dark days of the dictatorship of Marcos, of Ferdinand Marcos in the Philippines. And so how we regained democracy and ousted this dictator was our mission. And so it was more outward looking, outward meaning to our kindred friends or partners or peoples in the so-called South, be it in Southern Africa, Latin America, etc. And we too wanted to learn from their experiences. So it was more, that was our mandate as an organization. It was uh, like uh, sharing to the world this experience. But back to 2000, while we were based in Davao in the south of the Philippines and doing this outward south-to-south work in East Timor, in Burma, in Aceh, West Papua, South Thailand, doing internships in Southern Africa, Nicaragua, El Salvador, and all of this, we felt that when our partners were saying, hey, what can, why are you doing these things outside and not doing something here inside the Philippines itself, even if our mandate was clearly for that. And we then, then convened a, our partners in the Philippines to discuss this uh, and see. And so uh, our mandate shift to expand and include peace-building work inside our country at that time. As uh, concretely, we consulted or helped facilitate the convening of these communities and these partners, wherein they wanted, uh, they needed a, a creative way or not, an, all kinds of ways in trying to mitigate the conflict, prevent conflict, etc. But with a so-called solidarity lens. No, that's what we brought into the to the equation since we were a solidarity organization at that time. We accompanied the self-determination struggle of the East Timorese, the Achenese, etc. We brought that experience back home in a peace-building situation, in a conflict situation. So this whole process of peace-building had this lens of solidarity people to be solidarity. So that is a long answer to that <laughs> to that question, but it is important to have that context. And so from a regional organization based in the Philippines doing work in the region or outside of the Philippines, we have included the Philippines in Mindanao as part of that, of, that, uh, of our geographical uh, scope. As a caveat, uh, since we do South-South people-to-people work. We are based in the south of the Philippines, uh, geographically, in an island, Mindanao, where there are different peoples and groups asserting their own nationhood, their own their own uh, identities, their own aspirations, which among themselves is also south-to-south. So where else can we uh, practice and live our philosophy or our mandate, so to speak, in of South South, but in 
an island of asserting, ascendant, and struggling peoples, South peoples. So I'm curious to know more about how this people-to-people solidarity takes shape. How do people show solidarity to each other, and how does it create change? There are different ways and different expressions of solidarity. We started with uh, galvanizing support from the the civil society in the region to support the cause of self-determination of East Timor at that time, in the early 90s, by organizing a coalition uh, in the region of of peoples in Southeast Asia before East Timor's uh, issue or problem, if you may, was being discussed, if not lobbied and campaigned by peoples in the north or at the UN, at Geneva, New York. Solidarity groups at that time were, well, from our perspective, mainly, yes, honest to goodness activists, if not bleeding hearts from the north who wanted to also help change the world. And so they provide solidarity to to people in the South. IID, my organization, was I said, established out of the Marcos dictatorship when we were doing so, uh, what you call solidarity work, where people from the North supported our cause in the Philippines in galvanizing a people's movement in ousting Marcos. So it was time, it was payback time for us by, as I said, sharing that experience to akin groups and akin peoples who are also still struggling for their either self-determination, freedom, or independence. And so that was the context of our formation. And so when uh, when we did this, we wanted to focus on South to South, or people to people, uh, uh, people to people. When we say South to South, though, we expanded that concept to include people in the North who have a South perspective. So it also includes white people, if you may, who have uh, this solidarity feeling for peoples like them, peoples in the NGOs, peoples here in GPAC. And uh, same, the same goes for people in the South who are also have a perspective who are North-centric. So the elite of the South are what we consider the North in inside the South. So anyway, I won't dwell into that, but this is the whole concept of our South to South people to people network. So it doesn't mean that South to South is just people from the South geographically, but people who have this who have this uh, uh, solidarity with uh, issues of, uh, of communities, of peoples, be they geographically located in the Southern Hemisphere or Northern Hemisphere. So groups like, I mean, movements like uh, Arab Spring or even the Yellow Vests in France, I would consider South uh, in, that, in that sense, right? So people-to-people solidarity to us helps unify, if not galvanize, as I said, a process and an energy wherein people are able to share each other's experiences, learnings, best and worst practices in lobbying, for example, policymakers in capacity development uh, in, uh, in, in, in areas where people within the movement can, can share and can, can develop. So it, it's a whole gamut of work and of experience and of sharing and learning from each other, this whole South-to-South uh, uh, solidarity uh, concept. In that way, then, it, it does bring change at the minimum among ourselves, at the minimum within the movement. 
at the minimum uh, and uh, hopefully maximum with policymakers, uh, so to speak. So in our work, for example, in East Timor, we were doing work campaigning in the region within governments in ASEAN or the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. With, with the Indonesian government in particular, because they were the one, they were the country or the government that was occupying illegally East Timor. We were campaigning, of course, in Australia, which was the only country that recognized the jury, the occupation of Indonesia. We were campaigning, of course, at the UN at the decolonization committee hearings, where there was an annual hearing of decolonization of which East Timor was part. We were, of course, campaigning in Portugal, which was the colony, the, the officially the colonizer still of, of, uh, of East Timor. So those com combination of work, uh, lobbying, campaigning in capitals, in policy circles, uh, but at the same time, uh, organizing forums, seminars, so what have you, capacity development, sending medical missions into Timor, uh, and uh, what have you, if there are refugees, housing them, accommodating them, that, that whole range of of work we 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 did so i don't know if that answers your question no. yeah i think it does because um from what i've read iid won the highest civilian award from east timor for your work in the area well we didn't win i mean it was not a contest <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was awarded uh yes uh, i think it was a recognition and we were humbled by that uh, that award uh, it, it was in recognition with our, of our work uh, in accompanying their struggle for self-determination. So, yeah. Uh, Do you feel that your work is changing in light of current affairs, where identity is increasingly becoming a source of division, like in Myanmar or in South Thailand, as opposed to a source of unity? Changing in the sense of evolving, and we're upping the ante of things that we are we have been doing. Uh, in that sense, yes. And uh, on the other hand, it, it no, it, the base the basics are still there. The whole uh, need for change, the need for people to be in solidarity with each other, the the need for people to uh, do due diligence, even even civil society needs to be professional about things, to analyze things more deeply, to be more rigorous about research. So when you lobby and campaign, you have clear alternatives to present and project. And so you are not just seen as uh, sloganeers or, or uh, a, a rabid, a rabid uh, street protesters with, with, us, uh, with an anarchist bent, but uh, who really have something to an alternative to present and to to sell, and you should also be critical, self-critical in in that sense. When, when, and listen even to your so-called uh, enemies, if you may, uh, and see what they think about the things that you are doing tactically and strategically, so you become more more effective. So, in that sense, uh, we do see our work evolving and changing, as it uh, as you, as you ask. Uh, to respond to these uh, new challenges uh, that are confronting us uh, today. Could you tell us more about your anti-dictatorship roots and how you came to be swept up in the movement and formed IID? Uh, once upon a time, <laughs> there was a dictator called Marcos in the Philippines. I was uh, in high school then. 
um, I was uh, actually uh, activism at that time was uh, well there was ferment in the streets but I was a I was a um, inherent uh, what you call rebel already so even the rebellion or those the ferment I was rebelling against I didn't want to be part of it because it was the fad right so I didn't understand what uh, people were just jumping into the bandwagon of being activists because it was cool then right I wanted I preferred to play chess and uh, to uh, you know just to be quiet and observe but uh, of course you became you became more critical and you see things happening around you and see you saw how the dictatorship was running roughshod over people's uh, lives uh, future your your colleagues your your family and uh, even the culture was uh, being uh, trampled upon by this uh, imposition of not of your make and and then of course you become become very aware you become about our things you study certain concepts and theories you become you become uh, critical and you have this uh, lens of, of analyzing things you have a structural analysis was uh, the, at that time was uh, very uh, popular then the liberation movements of uh, in Latin America was also the darling at the time of uh, of people uh, liberation theology etc all of this uh, all of this were taking shape and it uh, just in a post post Vietnam War atmosphere also in the 70s uh, mid 70s so people were just like um, there was this uh, there was this uh, ferment uh, if you may going on and I was exposed to all of this while being exposed and witnessing the atrocities committed by the dictatorship uh, the military in particular uh, upon ordinary citizens in, in in particular and also in, in activists uh, activists and friends around you who who were only trying to do good for their own country and so I got um, recruited into the broad anti-dictatorship movement and uh, did different uh, tasks and work from organizing students to organizing cultural cultural movement in the in our city where in uh, the prevalent culture at that time was a was was uh, what we call well uh, an alienating culture of the culture of the West. Uh, instead of finding Filipino plays, we just there were plays like West Side Story or Fiddler and Rue. Why were they showing this place in in our own local context when we can talk more about and show the the real situation, the social reality in, in, in the country. And so we thought of, of organizing a cultural organization called Kulturang Atin, or literally Our Culture, and presenting social realist place, original and Filipino, to help awaken and uh, the awareness of our, of our citizens, especially the students where I was in the university. Then I moved after graduating. I moved into doing other work. I was into. I became a journalist. I was a teacher, a lecturer in university on journalism, theater, and uh, communications. And uh, as a journalist, you also get to do reports and go out in the field and see these things more up close and personal. And that exposed me further to the realities of of what was happening and the realities of martial law. 
and more than uh, that uh, deepened my commitment uh, to help restore democracy in the country. And you see you, that uh, that went on and I shifted from doing different tasks from organizing to <clears throat> organizing students and, and uh, artists to journalists to what we call the middle forces or the professionals, the lawyers, the teachers, etc. And finally, even opposition figures and to the point where I became a coalition worker or something like uh, galvanizing coalitions, networks against the dictatorship. Uh, openly, I mean, in an open legal front, meaning we were in the legal field. Well, legal means we were not in the underground or the armed component of the movement. And that was uh, also, of course, struggling among Marcos. So that was my exposure from then finally in international solidarity work, wherein we tried to get support from outside the international community for financial, political, technical support in our struggle against violence. And that led, that last experience led to the basis or the conditions in creating IID eventually when we did uh, uh, South-to-South work afterward, well, once we'd ousted the dictator. So when you work today, is it difficult to build these broad coalitions of very diverse people from many different countries and religions? Of course, at first blush, it would, would seem to be difficult, but it would be easy if you have... Uh, it's easy if you have... If you tap the same people who have the same mind, the same thoughts, the same vision, the same dreams, it's easy. It's the operations, uh, the operational side, which is hard, the logistics, the funding, etc. But getting people together in the same... on the same uh, aspiration and vision is... is well, it's easy, but it's not easy. You know, I don't know if I, I you get the drift. But uh, uh, if you, of course, you work with first kindred spirits, no, and then you try to you try to unpack that uh, that basis of unity and that basis of discussion into specifics already. Then that's when it gets hard when you talk about log frames, when you talk about plans, matrix, etc. The language of uh, of donors, for example, and even among yourself, sometimes there's competition, there's turfing, etc. These are the dynamics of this kind of a of work. But that, but uh, what prevails, of course, is your all your unified and common desire to help uh, achieve justice and peace in in this in this world. I'm also very interested to hear more about your work with ASEAN. You've talked about lobbying at the regional level. And I think something that has changed very concretely recently is ASEAN's um, shift on its policies on Myanmar to begin advocating for less of a non-interventionist approach as it has in the past. Can you tell us more about that? Well, we're happy. Of course, we count our blessings. We know what ASEAN is. We know its limitations, what, it was, what was the basis of its, uh, of its formation. So... When you do lobby and uh, engage uh, entities, you have to know also the parameters and the limit, and you you have to manage your expectations. But you go for the maximum, push the envelope, if you may, then uh, and but be more be realistic, no? be realistic, and don't put all your eggs in one basket. <laughs> the, uh, engaging ASEAN is not the be all and end all of our advocacy in the region. 
these there there are other platforms and, and arenas for for achieving what you want to achieve so in lobbying ASEAN yes uh, for a long long time since it's its inception its uh, policy has been uh, non-interference constructive engagement if you may etc but this has uh, in the past, in the re- very recently, for example, two represent two government official representatives from Indonesia and Malaysia uh, in in the ASEAN Intergovernmental Human Rights Commission uh, uh, practically broke protocol by issuing a joint statement uh, on the Rohingya issue in Myanmar, which was a no-no before within ASEAN. You don't do things like that. You do things by consensus. So if someone, if one nation doesn't want one thing, it won't think that won't pass. Eh? But these two uh, very uh, progressive, if you may, and very uh, um, representatives, government representatives, if you may, and they had the imprimatur of their respective governments at that time. Of course, we have to understand the context also. It was the Rohingyas, they were both Muslim countries also, so they're, those those dynamics play. But you count your blessings, as I said. So this this happened, and they issued this joint statement, and we were happy in a way to help uh, in a little way, uh, maybe uh, contribute to that uh, condition, and some of our partners even contributed to that statement that they that they that they made. So, if it is true indeed that they are officially shifting their their policy, if not their approach in the Rohingya issue, then that's a little step in a good in a in the right direction. But then you don't again, as I said, put everything in that. Uh, you will have to expect things only at a, uh, a particular level. It, if it will help organize, galvanize the Rohingyas and the support of the Rohingyas in in the region, in the world, then so be it. We, we will harness what we can from that uh, development. So we have a few fixed questions that we are asking to all our guests. Um, so something we're interested to hear about is what is something you hope to see achieved in the world of peace building? whether it's globally or locally, within the next year? I would like to see more partnerships between the different stakeholders, uh, principal stakeholders, particularly civil society and within civil society, governments or policy actors and uh, and in, uh, intergovernmental agencies or organizations. So. That would be my even ah I would add maybe even non-state actors. I would like to see the a an opening, if not a welcoming, of a possibility of partnering, uh, even if you're at odds with each other uh, in other platforms. Uh, so that kind that that desire is uh, rooted in, of course, the basic uh, belief of GPAC, which is essentially no. One actor can can um, prevent conflict. Uh, not governments, not the UN, not ASEAN, not even civil society. So we need uh, to cooperate and partner to be able to mitigate, prevent, if not transform conflicts. Okay. And if is there any, if you could debunk one myth or common misconception about peace building, what would that be? Maybe yeah, related to my answer to the first to the prior question is peace building is not the domain of one actor. 
I know. So that's, I think, a peace building is not the domain of governments, not the domain of uh, the UN or, or even civil society. So that's a myth. And that's a prevalent perception that peace building. And of course, there are also those who take it to the extreme that sometimes you achieve peace by going to war. And I'd like to debunk that. that you don't, uh, um, you can never achieve peace uh, when you waste one life to just achieve something. Of course, uh, a, in my younger days, I would believe otherwise, but that's another story. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your insights and your very interesting stories about how you came to be involved in peace building with us. Yeah, thank you too. I'm surprised myself with what I said. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Peace Corner. If you're interested in hearing more from us, please click subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you might be listening. And tune in next time when our youth, peace and security intern Theodora will be talking to the fascinating Gazanka Lynch about the role of youth activism in peace building. Thank you.